Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. The cut. The cut. The cut. The cut. The cut. Okay, we're going to play a game. I'm actually like playing a game with you, the listener. So just play along here. So you're going on a trip and you have five animals. A cow, a horse, a lion, a lamb, and a monkey. Really picture each one. A cow, a horse, a lion, a lamb and a monkey, all right? Now, on this trip you're on, you're going to have to give one of those animals away. Which one do you get rid of first? All right, you got which one you're giving away? Now, get rid of another animal. And then the next one. And then the next one. And then which one do you keep? That last remaining animal just... Hold it in your mind's eye for a minute. That's the animal that represents what you value most in life. Each of these animals are representative of the priorities in your life. And like the lion is your pride and the horse is your job and the cow is wealth and the lamb is your significant other and um, the monkey is like a child. Michelle learned about this game from her aunt back when Michelle was a teenager. And the way she thought about it back then was like, okay, If the premise is that I'm going on a trip, I need to pack really light. And so I was like, it's going to be a real pain in the ass to like carted lion around. So like that's going to go first. And then like the cow is also like this really like large stubborn animal. So like I can get rid of that. And looking back, it makes sense that Michelle would immediately give up her pride and her hopes of striking it rich. Because you kind of have to if you're going to grow up to be a touring musician. My name is Michelle Zahner, and I also play in a band called Japanese Breakfast. But before Japanese Breakfast was playing venues all around the world, back when Michelle was a teenager playing this game with her aunt, the third animal she gave up was the horse. And then it was a real toss-up between, like, the lamb and the monkey. And when Michelle played this game with her aunt, she was like, wait a second, have you played this game with my mom? What animal did she pick? Since, you know, choosing your child is an option, you're like, well, she better have picked the monkey. Although Michelle wasn't 100% sure that her mom would 
choose the monkey. I very much felt, I very much was my mother's priority. But she was also kind of like somewhat of an enigma to me. And I think that that was why this type of game was so enticing to me, because she could be very private and somewhat withholding. As Michelle writes in her new memoir, Crying in H Mart, her mother wasn't what she calls a mommy mom. My mom was by no means like coddling anyway. She was very present and very involved in my childhood, but she was not easy on me in a lot of ways. And every time I got injured, my mom would be very upset instead of like, you know, rushing to my aid and taking me to the doctor and sort of like telling me it's going to be okay. She could, you know, she would get very angry and start yelling at me because she was just so angry that it happened, I think, and didn't know how to direct that energy. Even as Michelle grew up, her mom was always a source of tough love. I remember when I got fired from my job at a, a waitressing at a Mexican fusion restaurant and I was so upset because I, you know, worked really hard and, and, you know, a lot of, I've seen other moms be like, you know, it's their loss, honey. Like, you'll find another job or whatever. And my mom's like, well, Michelle, anyone can carry a tray. <laughs> like She just had this like very like cruel reality that she would hit me with. And in Michelle's mother's defense, Michelle was kind of a handful. I was such a rowdy tomboy. I didn't take care of my things very well, and that drove my mother crazy. My mom was someone who had like a 12-step skincare regimen and could own a piece of clothing for 20 years and look like it had never been worn. And she took so such like great pride in like self-care and her appearance and fashion and designer handbags. And, you know, I was like a little punk kid that wore Daniel Johnston t-shirts and patched overalls and wanted to like, you know, play rock music for a living. I was very angry and like sort of perplexed by my mom's decision to settle for being a parent and a homemaker. I think I just kind of like looked down on my mom for not having that type of ambition. And there were two personalities that were very at odds with one another. But the overlap in the Venn diagram of Michelle and her mother was their shared love of food. I felt like I, I could never please my mother with like good behavior. I could be sort of courageous in small ways that impressed her. And pretty early on, I was just really validated by my interest in food and my eagerness to try certain things. Especially Korean food. I grew up in Eugene, Oregon, which is a small town in the Pacific Northwest. It's a college town. She was from Seoul, Korea, and, and we, we moved to Eugene and we could visit every other summer, which was a real luxury. But I, I think that she also, later on, I feel like I realized she was very homesick. So I think a lot of the times when she saw me enjoying the same kind of food that she grew up eating, she really had this moment where she was like, that kid is mine. But this is like especially adventurous eating, especially for an American kid. My most like adventurous thing was eating sannakju, which is like this live octopus, small octopus. And I remember they cut the tentacles like from a live octopus and it's so fresh that the pulse is still present. Like they, they present it to you and it's, it's still moving. So that was one of the first things that I remember eating and feeling proud of and impressing my relatives. My relatives would say to me if I like ate a big bite or something or like finished my meal, it was always like, oh, I go yep, like, oh, she's so pretty, good job. And so I was really validated from an early age that eating well and specifically Korean food was something to be celebrated. My dad is also a pretty adventurous eater and, and it's just 
if you're not raised that way, it's like never your full comfort food. You know what I mean? Like he loved Korean food, but he would get tired of it if he ate it every single day in the same way that like my mom could eat American food. She just didn't like it as much. It didn't feel it didn't make her feel full or like settled. You know, my mom would always make like a Korean dish and then she would make something really simple for my dad, typically like a salmon with like asparagus or some like very Caucasian thing. Sometimes it would be like steaks and like, you know, my mom would have a Korean dish and I'd be like, oh, I want to eat steak today or I would eat both. On her dinner plate and in her life, Michelle was kind of caught in between these two cultures. I've always felt really ashamed and stunted when it comes to speaking Korean. You know, my mom didn't speak it very often at home because she didn't want my dad, I think, to feel excluded. But it was also largely my fault. You know, I went to Korean school every Friday and I hated it because, like, who wants to go to extra school? I never became fluent. But when Michelle and her mom would touch down in Seoul, the language they shared was food. We would be so jet lagged and really tired and like my aunt would would call for this Chinese Korean fusion and it's like black bean noodles that are like so delicious and like just extremely salty and savory. And that was like my favorite, one of my favorite dishes growing up was jajangmyeon and eating that like really quickly, like a rabid animal and like crunching into the like crispy, like sweet pickled radish. And then uh, we would get tangsuyuk, which is kind of like a sweet and sour pork that's like battered and fried and has this like delicious sweet and sour sauce that comes with it. And sometimes my mom would get jampong, which is like a spicy seafood noodle soup. And so that like being like our first meal every time we walked through the door was like something that was really special to me. But when Michelle was in her early 20s, her mother started to complain about a stomach ache. And then she's like, I'm going to the doctor. And, you know, my mom didn't usually go to the doctor very often. She also was really of the opinion that like it most things kind of like figured themselves out within like a week or so. So Michelle had a feeling something was up. But at the time, her mom was back in Eugene and Michelle was on the East Coast trying to start her life as a musician. And she was on a trip to New York. So my bass player had just quit the band. My old band was called Little Big League and he had been offered a spot in this band, a much more popular band than ours was at the time. And I was like so devastated. Your band is like a family, you know, and it was just like my brother leaving. And there was this shame that I felt that our band was never going to make it. This, this might fall apart. And I went to go meet up with a friend who worked at The Fader. He was an editor, a writer at The Fader. And I was kind of just trying to come up with a backup plan because I was 25 years old. And I was like, maybe I need to start thinking about maybe getting into music journalism or like some other backup plan in case this music thing doesn't work out. My mom had gotten a colonoscopy and I was texting her and she wasn't responding. And then I, I, I called her and I could tell that she didn't, she was like, oh, you're in New York. I want to wait till you're back in Philadelphia because I was living in Philadelphia at the time. And I really pushed her. I was like, you know, I want to know, like, this isn't fair that you're like withholding information from me. And then she told me I was like on the street in the Lower East Side, like, and just, yeah, found out that my mom had cancer. Surgery was not an option. She was going to have to go through chemotherapy. Being an only child, I always kind of knew that this moment was going to come where I was going to be there for her the way that she had always been there for me. The, there was this major role reversal and it was going to be on me to like sort of prove that I really loved my mother. Within a month, maybe, of when she found out I, I quit 
my I had like three jobs at the time. I quit my jobs. I put the band on hiatus. And I actually flew there the day that she had gotten her infusion. And like for the first like three days, she was totally fine. Like it was, you know, just a little weak. Like I'm just tired, you know, and I was like, okay, well, we could deal with this. Like this is fine. Then fourth or fifth day, it was like all hell broke loose. I mean, they like hit her with a real like Molotov cocktail of chemotherapy drugs. And it was a, a pretty hefty like dosage, I think, that just like knocked, knocked, knocked her out, throwing up couldn't keep anything down and like if you throw up for like three straight days and can't keep anything down you start to lose it michelle badly wanted to feed her mother but she didn't really know how you know i realized that like for all of my love of korean food and how much i grew up like eating it there was a lot that i didn't know about korean culture and a lot that i didn't know about korean food that i wasn't able to provide for my mom because why would i know you know, the kind of foods like older people with illness eat. That wasn't what we ate in my house. We ate like really spicy kimchi jjigae. We ate scalding stews and seafood. And those are not things that you want to eat when you're on chemotherapy. Michelle knew that the right foods were out there. You know, there were like, chachuk was something I had eaten before. It's like a pine nut porridge, but it's not like something that I knew how to make. You know, I'd had it maybe once or twice when I was like sick or something, but I didn't know how to make it. And there's not a lot of texts that are available in English about how to cook Korean food. Now there are, but you know, even like eight years ago, I feel like it wasn't as popular of a thing. And it's like, I remember my asking, having a phone call and asking my mom, like, how do I cook her short rib Calbee recipe? And it was like, just add sesame oil until it tastes like mom's. And you're like, fuck you. <laughs> it was the shame that I experienced not being able to nurture and nourish my mother the way that I wanted to. And it was also this preservation of, of culture that I feel like was at risk for the first time. Her mother's friend came and she knew exactly what to cook. Just like really plain foods. She made kongguksu, which is like this cold soybean broth. And I'd never had that before. And I was like, am I bad Korean? I had no idea that this was a thing. And that was something that it was like the first thing that she made for my mom that she like ate all of. And I was like, wow, I feel like a real failure that I can't give that to my mom. Food be was no longer an enjoyable thing. It was like so much stress and agony of just trying to like keep her alive. I was trying to get her to like four. I mean, I think it was like 1200 calories was our goal. When you think about food as instead of this like joyful thing to delight in and instead it becomes like a math equation, it really takes the joy out of eating. And at one point they like had hooked her up to like a milky like substance bag that provided her with the nutrition that she needed so she didn't have to eat and, uh, you know, just slowly losing all functions. Michelle's mom passed away on October 18th, 2014. It wasn't until my aunt came for the funeral, my aunt and my cousin came for the funeral, that I was really compelled to like make them a Korean dish to make them feel at home and like comforted in some way. And I made tengjang jjigae, which is like this fermented soybean stew that is a real staple in Korean food. It gave me like such a sense of accomplishment when I was able to like make something for my aunt and my cousin. I'd never cooked for them. And I think that afterwards I was really drawn to cooking Korean food because I felt that I needed to like kind of undo that sense of shame that I felt by sort of cooking a lot of the things that I, I didn't know. 
And Michelle knew that her mom hadn't always known how to cook. This is something that her mom had to learn too. There's been a number of stories where my mom didn't even know how to make rice when she left the house. I think it was like a slow process and probably a lot of phone calls, getting recipes from like other Korean friends and trying things out. For me, I was really lucky because like, you know, the internet is a thing. If you have never made kimchi before, this is perfect chance for you to learn how to make a traditional kimchi. I was really lucky. I found Mangchi, who is like this Korean YouTube vlogger who I'm obsessed with. And she was a huge key in figuring out how to make a lot of these recipes. And cut it in half. Just give a little slit like this. I would follow like her like kimchi stew recipe and, and, and I would remember, oh, but my mom didn't use anchovy stock. She used pork. And so I would substitute these types of things based on memory and, and taste in some ways to make it more like how I grew up eating. In a way, I feel like my mom really lives on in me. I'm very like her in some ways. And I like think that that's just how I have become close to her is like doing things that she would do or reacting to things in the, the way that she would react. I used to hate it when my mom would like scold me for like different habits. And now like I'm exactly the same way. If my husband like wipes grease on his pants at like, you know, I'm like, oh, you, you just bought those pants. Like, why, why would you do that? Or like if he spills something, I get like very angry in the same way that she would get angry at me. And I, I there's part of me that that like hates that I am like that. But I also uh, kind of like relish it in a way. She wasn't an artist, like she would have never called herself an artist or maybe even a creative person. But I think that there were parts of her her person that were creative and artistic and that that we don't often credit in that way, you know? Maybe my mom didn't have the same kind of support to like pursue her interests when she was growing up. And if she had gotten the same kind of care that had been provided to me, she might have gone on that path herself. In her grief, Michelle turned to her mother's art of cooking, but she also turned to her own form of expression. I wrote this album in this little cottage at the bottom of my parents' property that like, my dad had named the man cave at some point, but never actually went down into. Just like went there for privacy and like would you know record little demos to communicate the, the very complicated feelings I was experiencing. I wrote the record in Eugene and finished it in New York and then sent it to some small record labels and told them very explicitly I wasn't interested in, t in touring because I was ready to like take on a real job and needed to focus on that. And of course, that was the record that got me artistic recognition for the first time. The first release from Japanese Breakfast came out in 2016 and it's called Psychopomp. On the album cover is a picture of Michelle's mom. Yeah, it's a picture of my mom when she was probably in her early 20s. My mom is kind of like reaching towards the camera in this very captivating, compelling way. If you read Michelle's memoir, Crying in H Mart, it's like this decoder ring for a lot of Japanese breakfast songs. You can see where so many of the lyrics have sprung from in Michelle's life. And a lot of them do come from this period of loss and discovery that she spent caring for her mom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of Easter eggs in there, for sure. So, like, in this way that we're all sort of, uh, in some way or another, destined to become our mothers, do you want to become an actual mother? I do, yeah. I do. I don't think that was something I thought much about until I got married. And, you know, I, I had that feeling for the 
very strongly for the first time after my mom passed away. I don't I I want to have a child in a way because like my I'm no longer a daughter. Although even back when Michelle was a teenager playing that game with her aunt after she had given away the lion, the cow, the horse and the lamb. She was left with the monkey, which is the animal that her mother had chosen too. After the break, Michelle reads from Crying in H-Mart. It is a gorgeous book that made me a massive fan of Japanese breakfast. It made me very hungry for Korean food and it made me call my mom a lot. And you'll hear why. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. This week on The Gray Area, Professor Diana Posulka and I tackle one of life's biggest questions. Are we alone in the universe? What would it take for you to step off the agnostic ledge and say, yeah, Aliens are real. Is it a spacecraft landing on the White House lawn? Well, something that was anomalous in 1952 did fly over the White House. And that's one of those cases that is still weird. (laughs) That's This Week on the Gray Area, available wherever you get your podcasts. And now, Michelle Zahner reads from her book, crying in H-Mart. My mother died on October 18th, 2014, a date I'm always forgetting. I don't know why exactly, if it's because I don't want to remember or if the actual date seems so unimportant in the grand scheme of what we endured. She was 56 years old. I was 25, an age my mother had assured me for years would be special. It was the same age my mother had been when she met my father, The year they got married, the year she left her home country, her mother, and two sisters, and embarked on a pivotal chapter of her adult life. The year she began the family that would come to define her. For me, it was the year things were supposed to fall into place. It was the year her life ended and mine fell apart. Sometimes I feel guilty about misremembering when it happened. Every fall I have to scroll through the photos I've taken of her gravestone to reconfirm the date engraved half obscured by the multicolored bouquets I've left these past five years, 
or I resort to Googling the obituary I neglected to write so I can prepare to willfully feel something that never quite feels like the thing I'm supposed to be feeling. My father is obsessed with dates. Some sort of internal clock whirs without fail around every impending birthday, death day, anniversary, and holiday. His psyche intuitively darkens the week before, and soon enough he'll inundate me with Facebook messages about how unfair it all is and how I'll never know what it's like to lose your best friend. Then he'll go back to riding his motorcycle around Phuket, where he retired a year after she died, filling the void with warm beaches and street-vended seafood and young girls who can't spell the word problem. What I never seem to forget is what my mother ate. She was a woman of many usuals. Half a patty melt on rye with a side of steak fries to share at the Terrace Cafe after a day of shopping. An unsweetened iced tea with half a packet of Splenda, which she would insist she'd never use on anything else. Minestrone she'd order steamy hot, not steaming hot, with extra broth from the Olive Garden. On special occasions, half a dozen oysters on the half shell with champagne mignonette and steamy hot French onion soup from Jake's in Portland. She was maybe the only person in the world who'd request steamy hot fries from a McDonald's drive-thru in earnest. Dampong, spicy seafood noodle soup with extra vegetables from Cafe Seoul, which she always called Seoul Cafe, transposing the syntax of her native tongue. She loved roasted chestnuts in the winter, though they gave her horrible gas. She liked salted peanuts with light beer. She drank two glasses of Chardonnay almost every day, but would get sick if she had a third. She ate spicy pickled peppers with pizza. At Mexican restaurants, she ordered finely chopped jalapenos on the side. She ordered dressings on the side. She hated cilantro, avocados, and bell peppers. She was allergic to celery. She rarely ate sweets, with the exception of the occasional pint of strawberry haagen a bag of tangerine jelly beans, one or two seized chocolate truffles around Christmas time, and a blueberry cheesecake on her birthday. She rarely snacked or took breakfast. She had a salty hand. I remember these things clearly because that was how my mother loved you. Not through white lies and constant verbal affirmation, but in subtle observations of what brought you joy, pocketed away to make you feel comforted and cared for without even realizing it. She remembered if you liked your stews with extra broth, if you were sensitive to spice, if you hated tomatoes, if you didn't eat seafood if you had a large appetite. She remembered which banchan side dish you emptied first, so the next time you were over, it'd be set with a heaping double portion, served alongside the various other preferences that made you, you. In 1983, my father flew to South Korea in response to an ad in the Philadelphia Inquirer that read simply, Opportunity Abroad. The opportunity turned out to be a training program in Seoul, selling used cars to the U.S. military. The company booked him a room at the Neja Hotel, a landmark in the Yongsan district, where my mother worked the front desk. She was, supposedly, the first Korean woman he ever met. They dated for three months, and when the training program ended, my father asked my mother to marry him. The two of them made their way through three countries during the mid-'80s, living in Misawa, Heidelberg, and Seoul again, where I was born. A year later, my father's older brother, Ron, offered him a job at his truck brokerage company. The position afforded stability and an end to my family's biannual intercontinental uprooting, and so we immigrated when I was just a year old. 
we moved to Eugene, Oregon, a small college town in the Pacific Northwest. The city sits near the source of the Willamette River, which stretches 150 miles north from the Kalapuya Mountains outside of town to its mouth on the Columbia. Carving its way between mountains, the Cascade Range to the east and the Oregon Coast Range to the west, the river defines a fertile valley, alluvial plains fit for a vast variety of agriculture. The town itself is coated in green, hugging the banks of the river and spreading out up into the rugged hills and pine forests of central Oregon. The seasons are mild, drizzly and gray for most of the year, but give way to a lush, unspoiled summer. It rains incessantly, and yet I never knew an Oregonian to carry an umbrella. When I was 10, we moved seven miles outside the city, out past the Christmas tree farms and the hiking trails of Spencer Butte Park, to a house in the woods. It sat on nearly five acres of land, where flocks of wild turkeys roamed picking for insects in the grass, and my dad could drive his riding mower in the nude if he wanted to, shielded by thousands of ponderosa pines, no neighbors for miles. Out back, there was a clearing where my mother grew rhododendrons and kept the lawn kempt. Beyond it, the land gave way to sloping hills of stiff grass and red clay. There was a man-made pond filled with muddy water and soft silt, and salamanders and frogs to chase after, catch and release. Blackberry bramble grew wild, and in the early summer, during the burning season, my father would take to it with a large pair of gardening shears and clear new pathways between the trees to form a circuit he could round on his dirt bike. Once a month, he'd ignite the burn piles he'd gathered, letting me squeeze the lighter fluid onto their bases, and we'd admire his handiwork as the six-foot bonfires went up in flames. I loved our new home, but I also came to resent it. There were no neighborhood children to play with, no convenient stores or parks within biking distance. I was stranded and lonely, an only child with no one to talk to or turn to but my mother. Left with her in the woods, I was overwhelmed by her time and attention, a devotion that I learned could both be an auspicious privilege and have smothering consequences. Cut Podcast is made by Jasmine Aguilera, B.A. Parker, and me. Edited by the magnificent Kelly Prime. Executive produced by Hannah Rosen, Stella Bugby, and Shot Kerwa. Mixed by Alex Higgins. All music provided by Michelle Zahner and Japanese Breakfast. We are a production of New York Magazine. You can subscribe today to support all their work at thecut.com slash subscribe. I'm Avery Truffleman. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.